There is further rioting and looting in the streets after a police shooting in Kenosha, Wisconsin. I have a lot to say about it. We're going to start here and build a foundation on this question. What would the Bible tell us? We'll start there on this week's Corey Act Show. This is the best thing, the best thing that could be happening. And I think you would agree the best thing is that it's happening to you and me. In general, I can never really imagine why any of you care what I would think on a given item, but I think here's the value proposition I bring to you. It is that I deeply want to figure out what the authority above all of us says and bring it to bear on the culture around us. And I will make mistakes from time to time. I know that's the case, but that is my desire today in looking at the the, the most prominent issue before us, and that is the, what's going on with police force and racial injustice and then the response of rioting and looting and the arguments that have come up to even argue for and justify the, the, the looting and the rioting, and I have a lot I want to speak into it in just a moment, but first, my name is Corey Truax. Thank you for listening to the Corey Truax Show on His Radio Talk 91.9 and 92.9. You can also find the show wherever you find podcasts. I'm grateful when you do. I also want to point you towards another resource. I get to serve at Beachwood Church, which meets 1030 on Sunday mornings in Greenville, Right now, it's a good time. It's a good time to be at Beachwood and or be watching sermons on YouTube. If you search for Beachwood Church, you will find it. This series in Revelation that my pastor and big brother is doing, oh boy, uh, you you don't want to miss out. This is really good stuff. So in any event, uh, let me encourage you in that. It's it's some good content to go and good really, uh, it feels weird calling sermons content that's what I do. I produce content, but it's, it's some really good Bible preaching. Oh, so you can find it on YouTube. Look for Beachwood Church. All right, here we go. What matters is from where we derive authority. I can't remember the theologian who said it, but the theologian said the core question for most of life is who says? Who's the authority? You telling me something that should happen or shouldn't or the way I should be or shouldn't be? Well, who says? Who's the authority? And what I want to try to bring to you now is an answer to that question. Well, who says anything about racism, the destruction of private property, individualism or collectivism, stealing, violence? Who, can, who says anything about those things that we should listen to? And what I'm going to argue is the Bible does. Our feelings about these things should be dictated by the only authority we're following, and that is Scripture. Here's the ones I wrote down to get to. Now, really quick, we're about to get heavy Bible stuff. I'm going to apply it. I'm going to take all of the concepts we're about to learn, and we're going to then look at the news through these concepts. Starting here. There, is, there seems to be an argument out there that says sins committed, the sins of partiality, so racism is a subset. It is a, it is a type of partiality, but the biblical category for the sin of, of racism is not really there. The sin is partiality, choosing one person over another or not choosing a person over another based on some external, for some external reason. Not seeing everyone equally in the, uh, made in the image of God. That's the sin, partiality. One of the ways that sin works its ways out is racism. And I am understanding from some that they say, well, th- there is a, a system of racism it was built by some people that are already dead, but it's being maintained even by you now. And maybe even if it's not you, it's people that look like you, and therefore you're, you're guilty. Because there's a collective sin, 
and you're all guilty. You white people are guilty collectively of the sin of partiality or racism. And I'm further hearing, essentially, the only way to repent of that sin and be reconciled is to become woke, to to speak the confession of the woke religion, and then you can be reconciled, you can be forgiven and redeemed if you will confess your sin, even if you haven't committed it, and you can be reconciled to the wokeness. So let's, let's dig into that. What's the Bible have to say about collective sin versus individual sin? Does God judge us for our collective sins, or are we guilty of the things we do? Am I, better question. Am I guilty of a great or great-grandfather's racism or partiality? Am I guilty of it? Do I bear the weight of it? Do, am I guilty because I'm a white person? Am I guilty of the, the sin of, the partiality that caused redlining so that black Americans over a long time got worse schools? Am I guilty of that? Did I, did I do it? Did I do slavery? Did I do racism? Did I do those things? And even if I, ha- I wasn't the actor in them, am I supposed to be blamed for them? Should we be judged for having been part of the system that built unfair and partial structures? There's a couple things I'd want, I'd want to mention here. Some people argue, yes. Some people argue that things like Romans 5, where we find that, well, in Adam, all people became sinners and in Christ the redeemed as a collective that they are the redeemed as the as the collective that's one way of reading that but it's an incorrect way of reading that it, all people collectively are born into sin and then every individual sins and they are held by God eternally that that sin will be punished either in them or on the cross of Christ but not the sins of everyone around them or their their social group, ethnic group, income group, they're guilty of their sins. The same way that they're guilty of their sins, the the consequence of following after Christ, repenting of their repenting of their sin and turning to Jesus, there's not a collective salvation in that. A, a father coming to faith and repentance does not mean that it is then expiated to his family. There's individual sin and there's individual salvation. It is not collective. You might argue, well, the, the Bible even says some things about the, the sins of Israel, God's covenant people, when there was more of a theocratic system. The sins of Israel, God judged them for. But hold on. Who actually committed those sins? Individual people did. And all of their sin together was something God would judge. And he rewarded their obedience. But who did the obeying? Individuals every day got up and did the obeying, and God rewarded the obedience, and he punished the sin. I'd like to illustrate this to you through Achan. If you go through the book of Joshua, I think that's, I think that's in the book of Joshua. Yeah, I'm right. You uh, have the Israelites have their first big win at Jericho. As they're coming into the into Canaan land, and the next city they run up on is Ai, and they lose their first battle at Ai. And what is discovered is that this guy named Achan, that when they were leaving Jericho, Israel was in Jericho, he stole some things that didn't belong to him. He took stuff that was supposed to be consecrated to, uh, to the new, I guess, the, the new tabernacle, but stuff, stuff that was going to be kept for the Lord, he took for himself. And having this sin committed 
affected everyone else. It affected them. Some of the arguments about collective sin is what all of the people were punished for what Achan did. That is not true. When that when the sin was actually found out and punished, Achan was punished. His family was punished, punished with him. But that was not punishment upon Israel. That was a a statement about not having sin in the group, but Achan was ultimately punished for it. There was just a consequence to the sin. And so while there is some truth to talking about sin collectively, ultimately sin and redemption is individual. And then we get brought into a collective, a family of God, and we are still individuals in it. So that's number one biblical truth. Sin is committed by the individual and will be judged to the individual, not the collective. And therefore, I'll go ahead and give you an application point. We are not guilty of what our, our grandparents or great-grandparents did. I'm not guilty of, some, of a system that got built when I wasn't around and I cannot be punished for it. Number two, a piece of information that we need to nail down. So one, sin and judgment thereof is individual. Number two, the Bible endorses the idea of private property. The eighth or ninth commandment, whatever one that is, thou shalt not steal, clearly indicates that property exists. You can't steal something if it, if it didn't belong to someone else. You can go to the story of Ananias and Sapphira. These two people come to Peter and they say, we sold this piece of land and now we're going to give it to the church. And Peter responds back first to, I think, first to Ananias, not Sapphira. Was this land not yours? Well, yeah, it was yours. And wasn't the profit yours that, that you made from it, that you earned? Yeah, it was ours. Right, so because you have lied about it, you've blasphemed the Holy Spirit and God strikes them dead. But the, the declaration there is, but it was yours. You've just lied about it. And so the idea that property is some kind of unbiblical idea or that it doesn't matter, this is, a, this is an evil idea. The Bible endorses the idea of property. It's an idea of stewardship that God gives to us and trusts to us some part of his creation, and then it belongs to us to steward for his glory. So number one, sins and the judgment thereof are individual, not collective. Number two, private property is a biblical idea and one that leads to human flourishing. Number three, there is a sin called partiality. I've already, I've already covered it. Partiality is preference of one group over another based on some superficial thing. One of the ways that comes out in people is racism, and it is sinful to prefer a white person because they're white or a black person because they're black or an Hispanic person because they're Hispanic. All of those are sins. It's the sin of partiality. Let me continue. Preferring a rich person because they're rich or a powerful person because they're powerful, also sin. Preferring any group over another group from some superficial external category that they fit into, that's a sin called partiality and there is no place for it. So, we can condemn one of the application points is therefore we can condemn racism because it is in the category of partiality. That is the sin category the Bible gives us. Final one. So number one, individual sin and individual judgment is how sin works. Number two, the Bible endorses the idea of private property. Number three, partiality is a sin when you prefer one group over another based on a superficial outward quality. And then finally, I want to read to you a little bit about good neighborliness. What does the Bible tell us about being a good neighbor? What does it mean to be good to each other? I collect this from several places. 
including Leviticus. I think I got a couple from Proverbs. And you can rebuild these concepts throughout the Bible because the Bible is very consistent. But this is what it means to love your neighbor and living in a society with those that you would love. Here's some things that the Bible would instruct you to do. You shall not, de- you, you shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to each other. You shall not swear by my name falsely. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. You are the, the wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. So those who are employers, pay your people when when they're when, when the agreement was when they need to be paid. Don't hold on to their to their money. That's that's one. From Leviticus, I think twenty or maybe nineteen. You shall not do injustice in court. So the legal system, the justice system, don't do injustice. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You get that? Don't pick the poor because they're poor. Don't defer to the great because they're great. Find the truth, whatever it is. Don't pick the weak because they're weak. Don't pick the strong because they're strong. Find righteousness. Find truth. So here's four truths, and then we're going to come back and apply those truths from Scripture. Number one, sin is individual, not collective. Number two, private property exists. The Bible endorses it. Number three, partiality is a sin. We don't prefer people for superficial outward qualities. And number four, we know what it means to be a good neighbor. We don't steal from each other. We don't lie. We don't slander. We deal justly in court. If I kept reading there in Leviticus 19, we respect elders. We respect the elderly. These are the principles of good neighborliness. When we come back, we are going to apply that to our moment, and I will do that thing I do. In a moment, you will be enlivened by me. The next moment, you will be infuriated by me. But all I really want to do here is the best I can is get to some truth. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Act Show. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show. Find me, Corey Truax, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Please do on any of those mediums where you are and like the page, click follow, whatever that action is on those sites. We'd love to connect with you there and for you to send your thoughts and reactions to anything I say. In particular, these next however many more minutes we have together, I, I, might, I imagine there might be some reaction. So we take four biblical truths that I gave you before the break. Sin is individual, not collective, that private property exists, that partiality is a sin, and that we have good biblical ideas of what neighborliness is. Being a good neighbor means not stealing from each other, lying to each other, uh, or doing doing unjust things in the court system against each other. That's being a good neighbor. It's what's going to lead to the most human flourishing. Now, before I get into one more thing, one more preamble before I start applying those, those principles. I think I've earned my credibility. I think I have some folks heavily attached to the racial unrest in the United States that are on every side that would say I've earned what I'm about to do. I've done plenty of content on the injustice surrounding Ahmaud Arbery. I've, I, I go back to Tamir Rice. I go, I go a long way back on this. I've showed up at Black Lives Matter events. I, I have the credibility to give all of the clarity that I'm about to give. It might get uncomfortable for some of you because I know I attract, a ver- I attract an audience that varies wildly. 
Some of you are going to feel really good. Some of you are not going to feel really good. You'll switch places along the way. But I, I do want to say it. Maybe it sounds really arrogant, but none of us have ever accused me of being humble. I've earned the hard things I'm about to say by my own behavior and the other content that I've put out before. Here we go. There is no moral excuse for what's happening in the streets of Kenosha, Seattle, Chicago. There is no ethical, there's no ethical way to justify looting, rioting, and violence in the streets. And I want to play for you now someone who tried to justify it. What I want to do first is take that first idea of individual versus collective. Can we punish one group for the sins of another to even the idea of private property, being a good neighbor, all of these come into the discussion. Is what's happening in the streets morally good? Can we support it? Can you condone it? I will go ahead and give you first the thesis. The answer is no, it must be condemned. But there are those trying. They're making their best effort at condoning it. I'm going to play for you now a Black Lives Matter activist who is involved, I think, in one of the Milwaukee protests. Her name is not on the screen, so I don't know what her name is. But let's hear her justify the rioting, looting, and violence in the streets. I don't care if somebody decides to loot a Gucci or a Macy's or a Nike because that makes sure that that person eats. That makes sure that that person has clothes. That makes sure that that person can make some kind of money because this city obviously doesn't care about them. Not only that, that's reparations. That is reparations. Anything they want to take, take it because these businesses have insurance. They're going to get their money back. My people aren't getting anything. That is morally twisted and evil and violates the four principles that I gave you at the top of the show. It is an utterly unbiblical, backward, twisted immorality. I actually want to play it for you again just to piece it through, like stop and start like I usually do on these things. Uh, sorry, so here we, here we go again for this person making these arguments. I want to play it for you one more time. We're going to start and stop and illustrate the backward immorality of it all. I don't care if somebody decides to loot a Gucci or a Macy's or a Nike because that makes sure that that person eats. So first, yeah, you don't care that they did an illegal thing and an immoral thing, but you should because it's, it's illegal and immoral. And it's, you say it makes that sure that person eats or has clothes. The amount of different ways to eat and have clothes in the United States are essentially endless. Our poor are some of the most opulently poor in the world. To get clothes for nothing or cheap is really easy. To get to food banks and to get, to get a meal, there's some challenges for a lot of folks. But that's not what we're actually seeing in most of the looting. These are folks that actually have cars and have, they're, not, they're not dressed in rags. They're not even actually making that argument themselves. They're making a different argument. They're not just providing for themselves. So that's an inaccurate and immoral argument. That makes sure that that person has clothes. That makes sure that that person can make some kind of money because this city obviously doesn't care about them. It makes sure that they can make some kind of money. So you're telling me they're starting their own business. They go and steal things so they can start their own business. They take private property, as we've already discussed. They steal. They're not being a good neighbor. They steal and they take. And they say that's going to be how you can make some money. There are other various ways of making money. I have lots of ideas on how to go about making money that doesn't involve the looting and destruction of society. Them. Not only that, that's reparations. 100% no. So that, we've already talked about private property. So you're taking private property. You are uh, you're stealing, taking, taking from your neighbor. So we have these sins committed. 
And now we have the first one. That's reparations, individual versus collective. So saying to some person who just owns Macy's, saying to the people who own Gucci, but not just the people who own those, the franchiser who started the local, the, the local one, who is by no means opulently wealthy, but just is doing okay. We, we can take your stuff, we can burn your businesses, we can steal from you, because we're saying you're guilty of a, of a collectivist sin. And scripture would say back to you, no. That, that person who has employees and families that count on them, no, they're not guilty of a very real sin of partiality. See how I'm connecting all these? There's a partiality that caused past generations of Americans to set up horrific systems of injustice because of racial prejudice, bias, racism. Use, they're, they're all fitting into that partiality category. That doesn't mean you get to apply that sin to these business owners. Moreover, you also don't have the authority to punish them. That's not been given to you to do. That is reparations. Anything they want to take, take it because these businesses have insurance. So then their next argument is they have insurance. So we can do whatever we want. We can violate private property. We can steal. We can destroy things because, well, there's, there's insurance. None of that justifies your actions. These are sinful actions in at least those three categories of judging the individual for something that happened that they didn't actually do, then stealing, looting, rioting, and also violating private property. They're going to get their money back. My people aren't getting anything. You know, on the insurance thing, let me actually play for you a clip to illustrate this, how morally backward it is. Because, you know, she talks about a Gucci yeah, stealing from a Gucci or a, or a Nike, that these are the um, the the large these large corporations, so maybe they can handle it. But that's not been the only victim. People who start businesses who struggle to make it, to make their, just to make their small business work, they've been burned to the ground. I'll give you one example of this that happened in Kenosha, to give you a, res- a response to that. That you're. Yes, you're violating private property, you're stealing, you're destroying, you're applying the sins of some other people to these folks to justify your own horrific, sinful, selfish behavior, but it's actually causing damage to real human beings. That's justifiable. We have insurance, yeah, but the insurance isn't there so somebody can destroy and your things and say, oh, well, there's insurance. Um, you, you pay for that. You know, we pay for insurance. That causes insurance rates to go up. It's basically theft. They just stole from us. Whoever did this stole from us. What's heartbreaking is seeing the actual business owner. This It's a woman. Now this is her, her son is the one doing the talking. Just sobbing out in front of an utterly burned down building. I mean, it's only got the frame. Took everything from these people and walked away. Now, quickly say, I have talked about all of the sins, including partiality. I have earned my credibility that I've talked about police, police brutality. I've talked about the incompetence of police. I've talked about racism or partiality. I've covered all the other sins. What I am saying with moral clarity and biblical authority is these responses are not moral or biblical behaviors in response to those other sins. Sin should not meet sin. That is not how, that's, that's not how this works.
So I've seen, sorry, I hear this woman in, I think that was Milwaukee, making those arguments about reparations and these people have insurance. All right, so that's an immoral, evil view. Then I saw this one. Well, there was uh, a me- there's a meme that was going around Twitter, and uh, I think I saw it on Instagram too. Someone posted a picture of some graffiti. Someone put some graffiti on one of these cities that said, you stole more than we will ever loot. You stole more than you, we will ever loot. It's really important to recognize the who's the you and the we. Going back to that original point from today, individual versus collective. So I'm, I'm looking out front here. This looks like a laundromat to me. It could be a different business. I'm watching this, this video of the guy you just heard from. What did, what did that person st- steal from you? Well, I need to know what that person, you ruined their lives. You wrecked their property. What did that person do to you? What did they steal from you? Have you had anything actually stolen from you? Not talking about systems and structures, but you use the language you stole more than we loot. You have to actually develop that because that's not, that's not true. Talk about racism. That takes every white person in the United States right now and just puts us all in some category of history. We're all just the same white people from the 1700s. That's apparently who I am. I'm just one of the slave traders. It's immoral. It's irrational. It's unbiblical because it applies the sins of one group in the past to individuals right now and then punishes the individual even though you don't have the right to punish them. Not to mention unneighborly where you are stealing and destroying their private property, property that belongs to them. And I've, I've got that beautiful thing here called consistency. We, you know, I, I read from Leviticus earlier about not doing injustice in the justice system in the courts. And so then I can, with just as much moral clarity, say it is insanely wrong that it took so long for Ahmaud Arbery to get any kind of justice. It is insanely wrong that Tamir Rice is dead and no one was really punished for it. That the Philando Castile case ended up like it did. I can say with just as much moral clarity, that was also not being neighborly. That is also a violation of the image of God on others, as is the rioting and the looting. We got to start living in more of an and world. The, the rioting and looting is sinful and immoral and unbiblical. And what's happened in, in a lot of individual cases are also wrong and unbiblical and sinful, and both injustices need to be responded to. This can't be a but world. Well, yeah, they, they're rioting and looting and, and causing damage, and in some places now, a lot of violence, but don't you know what happened over here? And then someone might, might say back, they're, the, they're, they're all of, um, here's the, the rioting and the looting that's happening over here, but let me tell you about the actual statistics about police interaction. We've got to be an and world where we're willing to condemn all of the bad and not pick a side and try to justify anything for any side. So you have the core sins we talked about from the, from the top. We're going to say, we're going to say here with a lot of clarity that there is no excuse for the looting, the rioting and the violence. There's no reparations here as a justification. The fact that some businesses have insurance isn't a justification. No, no one today stole anything from a, I'm I'm sure there's some example, but the idea that at broad, we white people 
are stealing things from at broad minority people. That is a moral wrong and a rational thought. And here's the last one I'm, I'm hearing is justification. The justification is fear and anger. Well, you have to understand people are afraid and angry. And to which I, you know, yeah, yeah, I'll put some, I'll put some flesh on those bones. You see people leaving the the, the speech from the president. His uh, his uh, I'm about to say something snide, but let, no, I won't. Let me pull it back. His speech, his speech he did to accept the Republican National Party, whatever it is, his uh, his presidential bid. And now we have video of as the crowd that was there leaving. People are up up in the face of elderly people with you know duck double middle fingers in their face, yelling at them. Just elderly, frail people. We've now seen video of an older man trying to protect his business in Kenosha by spraying a fire extinguisher and younger, more powerful men beat him into the ground, bloody. Being a consistent person is feeling the pain and the anguish of everybody not from your preferred group. Don't be partial. Don't be partial to the ethnic minority or the weak over the business owner who's trying to protect whatever little he has. Both both groups have some violence visited upon them. Feel both because both are injustices. To my core point, anger and fear are not justifications. We actually uh, have that in personal relationships all the time. You make a mistake and you say, but I was just so angry. All right, well, grow up. You don't get to throw temper tantrums. We don't have anger issues anymore. People are just so afraid. All right, well, if we actually can, can speak into the fear with some facts, we can diminish some of that fear. Because right now the level of fear is out of control compared to the reality. There's a media-stoked fear. There are folks in the media that want people scared, scared of cops. It, it, it should really be this, this simple, it, this kind of simplicity over calming down the fear. Police interact hundreds of millions of times with citizens throughout the year. There's always a tiny little number of police shootings. And then even if you want to say it's, it is more common for uh, black people when they interact with the police, let me go ahead and just give you that, even though that statistically it's, it's close. It's still this tiny little minority. So we have this situation where hundreds of millions of times people interact with the police and nothing bad happens, and then we have these 20 times or these nine times or 10 times in a given year, and that's what gets focused on. That is almost the definition of irrationality. The, the same way that a, a therapist, a, psycho, a psychotherapist would treat somebody with some anxiety over something irrational, like if someone had an irrational fear of earthquakes or a hurricane destroying everything, where there'd be treatment for that, one of them would be trying to get the facts to influence the feelings. But we're at a point right now where the emotions are so raw, there is so much anger and fear, you can't even reason. People can't be reasoned with with the facts. So, there, none of those are excuses. For the rioting and the looting, there, uh, the fact that there's insurance or this might be reparations, that people are angry or fearful, none of that is biblically a, an excuse because it applies collective sin to individuals who didn't commit them because it is violating neighborliness as, as stealing and destroying. 
it, it destroys the idea of private property, which is a biblical idea. And I'm going to go ahead and emphasize, though, I am also recognizing the sin of partiality. One of the iterations is racism. People might be responding to the sin of partiality, but you don't get to respond to sin with sin. I have a final point today. I think it will take the rest of the show. And it is continuing this conversation, and it's about police shootings. Some of what I'm about to say when I come back from this break, I have said before, but it is not fully a retread. There's some new content here, some new thinking I want to give you about how we interact with police shootings when they happen. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show. Welcome in for the final segment of the Corey Truax Show. Thank you for being with us. You can find the show on demand wherever you find podcasts. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for me, Corey Truax. You will find me there. If you have comments or responses to this episode, I highly encourage it. You can reach me at any of those social media sites or at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com, CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. I'm also quickly just going to say a thank you to supporters of the show like Charlie, Brandon, those that actually support the show financially, well, regu- regularly, and those that share the show regularly, some of those same people. I mean it, it helps. I'm actually seeing a little uptick here lately. After the Canon Hennon episode in particular, I got a little bit of an uptick, and so... Thank you for helping us continue to grow this thing I would love to do full-time at some point. So thank you to all that help with that. Maybe the last thing for today. We had another police shooting, right? Up, up in Kenosha, Wisconsin. We're, we're still working on the full facts of the case. We, we, we do know a little from that video, and we now know some context about how the entire incident started on who the the victim was, well, victim. Some of you, depending on your depending on your perspective, some of you will think of the guy as a victim. Some of you will just think of him as the guy who was shot. So let's just call him Jacob Blake. So now we know more about Jacob Blake. I think it's important to give you some of that background. And and then I just have some broad thoughts about how we look at police shootings. You know, now it's just hitting me. Here I am. I, I decided, hey. Let's actually give you the facts of the case so that we can decide what we believe. The lieutenant governor of Wisconsin, the day after this happened with Jacob Blake, said into a camera with microphones in his face, we don't need an investigation. This is another part of this situation that's becoming so irrational and unreasonable. Like, we don't need an investigation. We just, we know, cop shot black guy. We already know, because I know the team's. Cops are bad, black guys are good, so it's all I needed to know. It's over now. We don't need an investigation. What, what an irresponsible way to, th- to behave, an immature way to think, and a reprehensible way to lead for him to say such a thing. What we actually do know is Jacob Blake was at the home of a future, excuse me, a previous love interest of some sort. He had been previously convicted of... domestic issues, domestic violence, and there was an open warrant for his arrest. The person he was there to see is the one who called the cops. The cops weren't just rolling up there randomly. They were called to the scene as someone who had been previously abused in some way by Jacob Blake wanted the police to help. Not wanted the police to stay away, but wanted the police to help. In that interaction, Jacob Blake was tased twice, was able to continue on. He's going to his car and was shot seven times in the back. I am open to hearing how that needs to go. 
calling it murder or homicide, self defense, obviously not self defense, I guess, but I'm I would love to let the system do its thing because you know I think about those cops and wonder well, what else were they supposed to do? Like, what's the other option? I have a guy with a warrant for his arrest. It's my job to arrest him. He's a man with an open warrant. So, like, just letting him drive away isn't one of the options. It's, it's literally part of their job is to arrest this person. The, we were called here because he was being bothered by, a, he was bothering a previous victim. So this man who seems to be bothering a previous victim, who is currently wanted for another crime, who's guilty of sexual assault in the past, what's the option? I've tased him, it didn't work. I tased him again, didn't work. We've tried to, we've tried to subdue him and he will not be subdued. I can't just let him leave. Now, so I, I know that I struggle with it because I, I still don't understand why the multiple shots thing. Like, when, it's such an odd policy to me that the cops' policy is unload your gun. Just keep firing. Especially with someone who, up until that moment, we didn't, they didn't have any reason to believe he had a firearm Maybe he was reaching for one. That, that was a po- We now know that wasn't the case, but maybe that's what the cop was thinking. But this policy of unloading into somebody, I, I still don't understand. Maybe some cop will uh, be able to explain that to me. But here's what happened. B- before we're getting any real information, everything explodes in Kenosha and some other cities around the country. A cop shot a black guy, and now we know everything we need to know. There's no other information that's important. Cops are black guys, so we burn stuff down. It's irrational, and it's immoral. It's wrong. It's, again, going back to our, our top here when we started with Scripture. You can't apply to this cop some collective issues, collective prejudices that have happened in law enforcement. This is... This is part of the immorality. And then the way you work that out, your frustration with it, is to go then go and destroy things, take things that don't belong to you. These are clearly sin issues. Now, here is the sentence I would love for us to all internalize. Not all police shootings are the same. I'm going to say it again. Not all police shootings are the same. Now, some of you will say, hey, man, like within the last two months, you said that and you did a whole monologue on it. But stick with me. There's new information here. We have to stop as a people, and media have to be a part of this, black leaders have to be a part of this, that we stop treating every police shooting as unjust and racialized. Like, even with this Jacob Blake thing, it was both, we, from the top, we know it was wrong and it's racist. Wait, how did you just read everyone's mind? How did you read that cop's mind? How do you know he's racist? How'd you, how on earth did you do that? What superpower do you have? Just because a white cop shot a black person doesn't mean that it's racist. It also doesn't mean that it was a wrong shooting. It doesn't. It also doesn't mean it was right. We have to actually find out information. But if you just put it in categories, you've made a terribly a terrible mistake, and it's really intellectually immature mistake. So just to give you some examples of this, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit rapid fire and uh, giving a lot of various situations. Start with Tamir Rice. Tamir Rice was a child. Tamir Rice was playing with a gun in a public place, a fake gun that kind of looked real. Cop rolls up on this, I believe 12 years old when this happened, and kills Tamir Rice. 
That's wrong. It was unjust. It's horrific. And that cop should be punished to the fullest extent of the law that we can. But Samir Rice isn't Rashawn Brooks, the violent criminal, domestic abuser, child abuser, who was passed out in a Wendy's parking lot, fought off two cops, tried to grab their taser, and was shot. Tamir Rice isn't Rashad, Rashawn Brooks. And Tamir Rice and Rashawn Brooks aren't Breonna Taylor. Breonna Taylor is in a relationship with a man who is trafficking in drugs in Louisville. And we, we have no idea if she knew. There's, we, we, we don't know if she was involved in any way. And what actually, what happened in that case is there was a no-knock warrant, which I oppose, the use of no-knock warrants. And as the cops are knocking on the door, fire is returned. They have, they're, they're shot at. And cops shoot back. And Breonna Taylor was horrifically and sadly killed. And those cops have had no consequence. But that's not the same situation as Tamir Rice or or Sean Brooks. We have to treat all of those differently. And we treat them from differently than Philando Castile, who did everything right in that interaction he had there. I believe that was in Minnesota as well, years ago now. He did everything right in the interaction with police and still got himself killed. And excuse me, he, he didn't get himself killed. He was, he was killed by a cop. All of those are different than George Floyd, which now looking back with more information that we have, Finding out that he, he probably didn't die of being choked to death. We're, we're going to have to have this trial. And, be, and because of the politics of it, George Floyd is probably not going to get any kind of justice in the end because a very politically motivated uh, attorney general in that state is trying to charge the cop, uh, Darren, Darren Chauvin, with murder when it doesn't meet the definition. Obviously, I'm not an attorney. I have a really smart attorney that listens, and I was hoping to get to a, a topic that he and I have been talking about. We'll have to do it next week. It's Jerry Falwell Jr., by the way. I'll have to do it next week. I'm running out of time. But uh, maybe that very intelligent attorney can help me. But I believe in first-degree murder, you have to be able to establish intent. As a prosecutor, you got to show that this, this assailant intended to kill. You, you can't do that. With, with Darren Chauvin. There, there are just other degrees of murder that and all of them are going to have to require that you show that what the person did was the cause of death. And now it appears with George Floyd that he, he had enough conflicting narcotics in his system that we actually don't know what he died of. And in, in particular, now that we have the, the full video... The fact that Floyd was saying, I can't breathe before he was ever on the ground. If I'm a defense attorney, I'm going to emphasize that a great deal. He was already having trouble breathing, primarily because of all the drugs in his system. And apparently he had previously had a COVID infection, so respiratory, respiratory issues. But even what happened with him, as complicated as it is, and we're still trying to figure it out. Well, George Floyd isn't Philando Castile, who isn't Rashawn Brooks, who isn't Breonna Taylor, who isn't Tamir Rice. They're all very different situations and therefore demand different reactions. None of those were Ahmaud Arbery. Ahmaud Arbery is doing 
seemingly nothing nothing wrong, might have been in a place he wasn't supposed to be, but then accosted by people who don't have the authority over him, who are not cops, who have no authority to stop a private citizen, and they kill him. All of those are different than Jacob Blake. Jacob Blake has his own situation. The facts of the case are different in each one, and that matters. And whatever we can do to help people see it, we, we have to. That not all shootings are equal. And I think it is going to take black leaders stepping up and saying so. It's going to take left-wing leaders staying up and standing up and saying so. The problem is there's interests, both political and financial, to keeping riots like this going and getting people riled up and scared and angry. People think they can bring out votes that way. And so they want the instability. Some folks think it'll help them win an election, and so they want to keep up the lie and the instability. But that's the only way forward. We have to actually create a, a ground floor. We have to create a minimum amount of stability on which to have the conversation. Because the level of anger and fear right now, it is unreasonable. As in, it can't be reasoned with. I'll illustrate this to you really well. So the President of the United States is doing his little speech to accept the nomination. There was a lot of conflict as people who were at that event were leaving. Senator Rand Paul was one of them. He gets surrounded by people who are, he's, he's being protected by Secret Service, surrounded by a mob who is screaming at him, say her name, say her name. That's Breonna Taylor. That's the, the thing for, for Breonna Taylor, say her name. Rand Paul is the author of the Justice for Breonna Taylor Act. It happened in Louisville. He's the senator from Kentucky. He goes to the floor of the Senate and produ produces the Justice for Breonna Taylor Act, which would end the practice of no-knock warrants. Because in that situation with Breonna Taylor, you can sort of understand that she was there with this guy. They were People were breaking into their house. It ended up being the police... But they didn't know it was the police. And so I can actually totally see from being inside the Breonna Taylor apartment or home, fi fi firing away because you think you're being invaded. You think you're, you have people in your house that are there to hurt you. You don't know that it's police. And Rand Paul is the one that introduces the bill to end the no-knock warrant. And the mob is arounding him, around, around him saying, say her name. Uh, guys, he did. He put it on the bill. It's called the Justice for Breonna Taylor Act. But when there's so much anger and fear, you can't reason with that. Like, here's the guy who named a bill after her and you're screaming at him. When it's that kind of rage, it can't be reasoned with. I saw video in Washington, D.C. During the day, two people peacefully outside having lunch at a restaurant with outdoor dining because of COVID. And some mob comes up and demands everybody put up the black power fist. They are demanding everyone do it. You will follow their religion. You're going to give them what they want. And one brave couple just ignores them. And I have so much respect for them. There should be a lot of respect for them because that's an easy thing to do. Easy thing to do is just acquiesce to the mob. But out of principle, I wouldn't. And again, I've got credibility on this. I've been all over this for a long time, for years and years. Again, show, showed up at Black Lives 
matter rallies. I was I was talking about police brutality long before it long before most hosts were. This has been an issue for me for almost 10 years. I've been talking about racial inequity inside the criminal justice system for a long time. I got the credibility to say this. I'm not putting my fist up. Just for this reason. You're not my boss. That's not what we do. I don't do stuff like that to you. Don't do that stuff like don't do that stuff to me. Just out of principle, I'm not bowing to the mob. I bow to one person. His name is Jesus. I will not bow or acquiesce to your wishes. You don't get to tell me what to do on the street randomly. And it is that kind of rage. It is that kind of mob mentality that can't be reasoned with. And so in these final 60 seconds or so, that's what I'm begging for. I've got my tiny little audience here, and I've got the little bit of influence I do, and that's what I'm asking you to do. Be, find every way you can to be a peacemaker. Find every way you can to be a reconciler. Try to be ready with the facts if someone is reasonable and is willing to hear them. Be empathetic and listen. Listen to the folks who have suffered from partiality, the sin of partiality. But then recognize just because some have suffered from the sin of partiality doesn't mean that anyone else gets to destroy property. Doesn't mean that anyone else gets to steal and destroy. Doesn't mean that anyone else gets the right to apply collect apply a sin to a collective that individuals do. And maybe above all, especially for you listeners that come from the same perspective I am, pray for peace. It's going to be a rough 60 some odd days until election day. And imagine the day after election day, no matter what happens there. Let's pray for peace. There's a lot. It's a tinderbox out there. And we are the people who have some kind of message that could lead us there. I am grateful with you when you listen. If you would be so kind as to share the show with others on your social media or just tell show folks about the show, I'd be grateful. We'll be back with another new edition next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.